So I want to begin this morning by telling you or sharing with you one of the most awesome injuries that I've ever experienced. It's happened about seven, seven, eight years ago. We were helping my younger brother, Logan, move into college. And uh, so we we go out of town. He he went to college in Georgia. And so we were staying the night, you know, stayed at a hotel. It was me, my mom, my grandmother, and Logan. And so we had the cars packed and all that sort of thing. And the next morning we woke up and went to his college campus to drop off his stuff and help him move into his dorm. And I don't know if anyone else can relate to this, but you know, as a child, as you grow up, sometimes your parents or maybe your grandparents, there are occasions where they'll still like treat you or talk to you like you're still a child. Like instead of asking you to do things, they'll like tell you to do things. And so my grandmother is awesome, but sometimes she does this. And so uh, I uh, had had flip-flops on during move-in day and she told me multiple times to put some shoes on. And at this point, I'm like, you tell me stuff all the time, grandma, it's cute, but my heart has been hardened. I'm not listening to you. I don't need to put flip, shoes on. Flip-flops are fine. Also, because we weren't the ones doing the moving. Like, you kind of pulled up, and they would take all your stuff for you into the dorm. And maybe you'd have, like, a box, but you weren't doing a lot of stuff. And so we, we, we pull up. We park or whatever. Everything gets moved to the dorm. Everything is fine, just like I had said. And so we get into the room. And I don't know if, if you're familiar with, like, dorm beds, but a lot of dorm beds, you have, like, two wooden... I don't know, pillars or whatever you call them. And then you have like this metal frame. And what can happen is that the wooden things are about four feet high and there's these little bars in the wooden frames where you can adjust how high you want your bed to be. And so in the four corners of these metal frames, there's like these metal hooks and it's kind of heavy. These metal things are kind of heavy. And so he wanted to raise the bed. And so he's on one side, I'm on the other side and we kind of pick, un- unhook the bed. I'm like holding the wood thing so it won't fall. And then I put it on the, the top level. He wanted it to be all the way high. It was like four feet high. And so I put it into my side. He puts it into his side. And as he like hooks it into his side, uh, I, com- I come to find out, as this is slow motion in my mind, that my side wasn't actually hooked in. And so the hook was like on top of the pole and it just went like this. And it just fell. And it was just like, I knew my foot was on the bottom, uncovered, because who has shoes on when you move people in? Not me. And it falls, and it bounces twice off of my foot. I have two scars, twice off of my foot and onto the floor. And I see this happen, and I was like in shock. I didn't really like, it didn't really hurt. It was just shock. And my foot was like a volcano. I mean, not like spewing out, but like just lava. Like it was just coming out. In fact, I have a picture for you. Just kidding. <laughs> Christina said I couldn't show you. I am the most, I am the most, um, I'm the most sensitive, like I can't look at pain when people, I'm so queasy unless it's myself, and so I show these pictures all the time. There's just like a pool of blood, right? And so it's just coming out on two sides because it, it bounced like twice, like a trampoline. And it's, so I'm like, I start to get dizzy, so they like pull up the bed that was on the, on the floor. And so I'm sitting there, I start to see purple, and I'm like, I'm about to pass out. And then my mom says, Dylan, no, don't pass out. I'm like, I can't, this isn't like an option for me. And so I'm just like sitting there. It's like things are going purple and dark. Luckily, Logan's roommate, his mom or grandmother or somebody brought all these cookies. And so I started eating these cookies and everything was okay. But long story short, what happened? My grandmother tells me to do things all the time. And so my heart had become hardened and I no longer listened. And then I have an awesome story to tell. So it was actually worth it. Now, I share that. uh, I share that because this morning we're continuing our time in the book of Exodus. And we're going to begin to see Pharaoh's heart 
being hardened toward the Israelites. We're going to see Pharaoh not listen to God, to Yahweh, not listen to Moses. And then ultimately, over these next couple of weeks, as we see the signs and the wonders of God, as we see the plagues of God on the Egyptians, we're going to see what happens when people harden their hearts and do not listen and reject God and what he's asking them to do. And so if you have a Bible, go ahead and open up to Exodus chapter 7. If you don't have one, there's a black one somewhere around you. And you can take one of those home if you do not own a Bible. It is our gift to you. Now, the story of Exodus is God rescuing his people out of Egypt, the Israelites, not because there was anything great about them, but because God in his loving and his kindness said, I'm going to take a nation from which the Messiah of the entire world will one day come. And so the Israelites are in Egypt. Things are bad for them. They're beaten. They're murdered, legalized genocide, um, which probably also include rape. I mean, this is just, it's awful. It's awful. And then Moses comes. God calls Moses, as we saw the last two weeks. Um, he's not someone that you would expect. Uh, he's old. He's done a lot of, you know, made a, made a lot of unfortunate decisions himself. Uh, last week, we, we talked about the Lion King and some incest. And so that was fun if you were here for that. Um, and, and now we're going to pick up the story again. And so what I want to do is we've done the last couple of weeks is I want to read the last two verses in chapter six to pick up the story again. Chapter six was again, God asking Moses and Aaron to go confront Pharaoh a second time. And Moses responds by saying, no, you sh-, giving another reason why he is not the one that should do this. And then we saw a genealogy last week. And we saw the line of Moses and Aaron and now their whole family is jacked up. Right, it's even how Moses came to exist. Exist was weird, right? So it's all sorts of messed up. And then again, it says this in chapter six, at the end of verse chapter six, verse twenty-eight and twenty-nine. It says this: On the day the Lord spoke to Moses in the land of Egypt, he said to him, "I am the Lord. Tell Pharaoh, king of Egypt, everything I am telling you." But Moses replied in the Lord's presence, "Since I am such a poor speaker, how will Pharaoh?" Listen to me. This is exactly what he says right before the genealogy is introduced. And so it's not that he's saying this twice. It's just the author of Exodus is trying to refocus our attention on what is happening here. Moses says he shouldn't be him, as we talked about last week, that God calls broken people. And it's not about our ability, but it's about God being with us. And so, again, Moses is saying, not me. Right? It's a reminder of Moses' protest, again, before the genealogy that we saw. And, again, by now what we've seen is that it's not about Moses, Right? Moses is not the hero of Exodus. God is the hero. It's not Moses' genius. It's not his expertise or it's not his physical vitality. He is old. He's at this point a lot older than the life expectancy of these people in this time and history. And so what we see here is their success is ultimately going to come not from Moses and Aaron and the Israelites being awesome. It's going to come from them obeying the Lord, as we'll see a little bit later in Exodus chapter 7. It's about them obeying the Lord and doing what he has commanded that leads to them, leads to them experiencing the power of God. And so as we begin this morning, I just want to reiterate a familiar phrase and theme that we've been talking about as, we go, gone through, going, as we're going through the book of Exodus, and that is that God's power flows through obedience rooted in faith. God's power flows through obedience rooted in faith. And now to be clear here, this is not to say that there aren't things about Moses and Aaron that are helpful, right? Moses, again, he, we see he's a high character guy. He has courage, which is good. Uh, we saw that uh, Aaron is a elder or a leader in the, in the tribe of Israel, which is why they even can have an audience with Pharaoh in the first place. It's not like anybody can just kind of go talk to Pharaoh. It's because Aaron is one of the leaders of the Israelites. And so there are certainly things about them that God used, but at the end of the day, it's not their ability. It's not who they are. It's about God being with them 
that is important. And again, this is the primary way that we see God use people all throughout Scripture. It's not our ability. It's not our awesomeness. It's not our faithfulness. It's us being obedient. And as we're obedient and as we're following Jesus, that is when God uses us. It's not when we go our own way. I liken it like this. A couple of months or two ago, Finley, our five-year-old daughter, which I guess I need to preface this story by saying that Finley is awesome, okay? If you've been here the last few weeks, I've shared story about, stories about our two-year-old Roman, and I always have to say that he's awesome. And someone was like, Dylan, why do you say that? It's because the majority of the time when I share a story about Roman, he's getting into trouble, he's doing something crazy, right? And so I want to let you know I still think he's awesome. But someone last week said, well, Dylan, how come when you share stories about Finley, you don't say she's awesome? What's up with that? And the reason I don't have to say Finley's awesome is because she's like the perfect child. She's sweet. She's kind. She's compassionate. Every story I tell, it's of her being awesome. And so Finley, years down the line, I know you're going to be watching all of your dad's sermons. I mean, what else would you want to do? You're awesome too. Okay, so a couple weeks, a couple months ago, she started taking piano lessons. Now, here's the thing. When you learn piano, you don't just get to do whatever you want. It's not like, oh, I'm going to plan a play. I'm going to figure this out because you don't know what you're doing. And it sounds terrible, right? It just it doesn't sound good. What's happening is as she's following what she's being told, as, as she takes lessons, as I'm like with her, as she's practicing and I'm clapping the beats and we're talking about quarter notes and half notes and where her fingers have to be on the piano, she's learning. Uh, she's, she's doing a great job. right? I'm, I'm impressed by this and I'm not easily impressed. She's doing a great job. Why? Because she's obeying what she's being taught. If she was trying to figure this on her own, she would not be able to play. She would not know what she was doing. She wouldn't know where to put her fingers. She wouldn't know how to read music. wouldn't have know how to do any of it. And so it's not about her ability. It's about her obedience and following and learning. And as she obeys and learns, that is when she'll actually be able to learn how to play the piano. And it's the same thing for you and for us as we follow God in our lives. God's power flows through our obedience and our following and our trust in him, rooted in faith, not in our effort. And it is when we believe in that and follow with that, that is when we see God's power. And this is when the Israelites are going to start to see God's power. And so chapter 7, verse 1, it says this. The Lord answered Moses, See, I have made you like God to Pharaoh, and Aaron, your brother, will be your prophet. You must say whatever I command you. Then Aaron, your brother, must declare it to Pharaoh so that he will let the Israelites go from his Land, right? So what's happening here is this is repeating for us what God wants Moses and Aaron to do. He wants them to address Pharaoh, tell him to let his people go. And so when he's when God, when Yahweh, when God tells Moses that you will be like God to him and Aaron will be your prophet, what he's essentially saying is that Moses is going to have authority over Pharaoh and over the situation, and Aaron is going to help him communicate to Pharaoh what God wants to be communicated and help him to communicate God's will. And so at the end of verse two, when it says, help the Israelites go from his land, it's reiterating here for the Israelites that Egypt is not their home. Egypt is not their land. God has another land promised for them. And while this is exciting and while this is good, we do have to remember that this is all they've ever known. Right? Every single living Israelite at this point has only known Egypt, has only known slavery. All of their living relatives, there's not a single person that is alive or knew an ancestor when they were a kid that was alive that has not been enslaved. And as we know, even in our life today, sometimes when things are hard and difficult, it's hard to leave things that are common to us. It's hard to leave places where we have memories, even if sometimes they're difficult. And so God is saying here, even in the midst of all that, this will be hard, but this is not your land. I have another land for you. And so verse 3 then says this. God says, but I will harden Pharaoh's heart and multiply my signs and wonders in the land of Egypt. 
Pharaoh will not listen to you, but I will put my people, the Israelites, out of the land. I'm sorry. I'll put my, my, sorry, where am I? I don't know where I am. Here we go. But I will put my hand into Egypt and bring the military divisions of my people, the Israelites, out of the land of Egypt by great acts of judgment. Basically, he's saying, I will rescue you and you will leave. Verse 5. The Egyptians will know that I am the Lord when I stretch out my hand against Egypt and bring out the Israelites from among them. And so what he's going to, what's going to happen here is he's going to see a sign, as we'll see in this part. In the next two weeks, we're going to go over the ten plagues. We're going to see signs and wonders and plagues to show that Yahweh, the Lord alone, is over and is, control, and is in control of everything. Not Pharaoh, not the Egyptians, not the Egyptians' God, that Yahweh is the Lord. And again, this is against what Pharaoh says in Exodus chapter 5, verse 2, when Moses and Aaron first confront him, and Pharaoh responds by saying, Who is the Lord? Who is Yahweh? Who is the God of the Hebrews that I should obey him? But I'm not going to let you go. I'm not going to do what you say, because I'm, who is he that I should actually obey him? And what's interesting what we often find is that there's, it's, it's one thing to believe and trust in a God that you believe in, right? If you're willing to honor him and you're willing to believe in him, it's one thing to, to believe God maybe out of your own desires. It's quite another thing uh, to believe God when you've seen acts of power and judgment. When, in other words, it's, it's another thing to believe God when you have no choice, it's another thing to believe God when you've been shown that you are wrong, you've been shown the errors of your ways, and that God is actually true. I kind of liken it, um, I don't know if you've ever been in a situation like this, <laughs> where you did something wrong, and if you would have just listened up front, everything would have been fine, but because you wanted to go your own way, later on you kind of had to kind of like admit defeat, that sort of thing. This happened to me uh, about a year or two ago. Uh, Christina ordered this, I don't know, I'll call it a coffee shelf. I don't really know what, to, what, it, what you would call it. I actually have a picture of it. <clears throat> there we go. A picture of it. Now, I know some of you are like, well, they stock their, stack their mugs. Yes, we have way too many of them. <laughs> One is that they've never fallen, though, so it's okay, okay? So Christina orders <clears throat> this coffee shelf, I guess you would call it. It's probably like a foot long or something like that. I don't know. Maybe, I don't know my distances. Something like that. Enough to put, what is it? Six mugs, okay? <clears throat> so she orders this thing. Is that six? Five? Five? Ten? That's not the point. Here's the point. So she orders this thing. And when she orders it, the same day she orders it, she was talking about how we don't have a lot of room in our bathroom. And so our bathroom, we just have one sink, and there's the two of us. And so we've got our stuff there. We've got some stuff in the kids there. So it's a total first world, first world problem. But our bathroom's not very big, and it's kind of cramped. And so she was talking about how we don't have a lot of room in our bathroom, and like our hand towel thing that's on the side of the wall like falls off all the time because it was like made weird, and I don't know how to fix things. And so it just kind of, we kind of live with it. And so I was thinking, so this thing comes in the mail. After we've talked about how we don't have any room in our bathroom, bathroom and in our sink and, you know, we need more space. Comes in the mail and Christina says, oh, look, it's here. And I said, okay, I'll put it up. She says, let me tell you where to put it. To which I respond by saying, I don't need you to tell me where to put it. We've already talked about where this is supposed to go. I'll put it up. No, I don't need you to tell me. Okay, let me do this by myself. So I did it. You might notice a theme here in my life of not listening, but it's okay. Um, and so I go and put it up. I don't, maybe she was outside with the kids. I'm not sure where she was. And so she comes back later after it was put up. And I say, okay, the thing is put up, you know, go. She looks into the kitchen, and it's not there. And she says, Dylan, where is it? You didn't put it up. And I said, I did put it up. She said, no, you didn't put it up. It's not there. Long story short, I put it up in the bathroom, and it was supposed to go over our kitchen sink, okay? 
And so at this point, I'm like, well, this kind of stinks. This is embarrassing. And so she's like, you got to take it down. Let me show you where to put it, to which I responded by saying, I don't need you to tell me where to put it. I know where to put it, okay? So I took it off the wall, patched it up, put it over our sink, and it's, and it's in its right position, okay? And so if I had listened, things would have gone well, but I hadn't. And so you might say, well, what's the theme here of this? What am I trying to say here? There's kind of two things you could take away from this episode. The first thing is, how impressive it is that I put this thing up twice. I mean, I think that's really, that's really the main idea thing, that I, like, I hung this thing up twice, and it's like, per- thank you, and it's perfectly flat. That's the main point I'm trying to communicate. But if you wanted to like stretch it a little bit, you could say, I mean, if you had just listened the first time, you wouldn't have to admit defeat. You would just do what someone asked you to do and not be like, I don't want to listen to anybody. Things might go okay for you, right? And that's what's, that's what's happening here. Pharaoh and the Egyptians would just listen Things would go better for them, but instead they're going to get to the point where they have no choice but to admit that Yahweh is Lord over everything. And so again, he says no, and then he says God's going to bring his judgment. And so verse 6 and 7, it says this as we continue. It says, so after Pharaoh says no, he's not going to let them go, or after God says Pharaoh's not going to let them go, it says, so Moses and Aaron did this. They did just as the Lord commanded them. Moses was 80 years old, and Aaron 83 when they spoke to Pharaoh. And so what the point here is that Moses and Aaron did what the Lord commanded them. And it's not just talking about this initial meeting. It's talking about what's going to happen over the next couple of chapters, all the times that they confront Pharaoh and the plagues and the signs and the wonders. The point is that they, they, they obeyed the Lord. Through all of these episodes, they obeyed what, the God, what God had commanded them. And again, it is their obedience, what we're seeing here, what's, supposed to, what's being emphasized here, it's their obedience, not their ability, ability that God uses. And what was true for them is, is also true for us, is that obedience at the end of the day is greater than ability. Our obedience and trust and faithfulness to God is greater than our ability and how good we are at doing things, right? As we saw, if you were here a few weeks ago, the first time that Moses and Aaron confront Pharaoh They don't say to Pharaoh what God actually told them to say. They kind of reword it a little bit to maybe seem less harsh that they wanted to leave and offer sacrifices to God. Maybe they were embarrassed or it's kind of awkward to tell Pharaoh, who's supposedly a God himself, that they want to go and worship another God. But what we do see later on here into the next couple of chapters, when they're obedient to what God has asked them to do, that's when God uses them. And that is when God's power and glory is displayed. And so if it's true... Right? If it's true that our obedience is greater than our ability, the question then becomes, what does obedience look like for you? Right? If obedience is greater than ability, what does obedience to the Lord look like to you? Now, again, I'm not saying that our abilities don't matter and God can certainly use them. But at the end of the day, it is our obedience, and sometimes it is obedience in growing certain abilities, about trusting God and working hard to experience Him. So the question is, what does obedience look like to you? And again, I I don't want us to over-spiritualize this question. Sometimes, yes, obedience can be telling a coworker or a friend about Jesus, certainly. But there's other areas of our life that we can be obedient, and maybe we're not following Jesus and honoring him and honoring others in certain areas of our lives the way that he's asking us to do. So perhaps maybe you and your spouse are struggling, and you're not honoring your spouse and loving your spouse and listening to the spouse, your spouse the way that you should. You are not giving yourself up and serving your spouse the way that God has asked us to do so, right? Maybe obedience for you means humbling yourselves, admitting that you are wrong, which I do occasionally, okay, like we saw, right, and, and, and serving your spouse. Maybe that's what obedience for you in this season actually 
looks like. Uh, Maybe it's giving a greater effort at school or in your work. You know how to skate by. You know how to do an okay job. And you know how to make sure things are okay. But you're not giving the effort. You're not being faithful where God has placed you in the way that you should be. Maybe obedience for you means being faithful. This doesn't mean you're going to get straight A's necessarily. It doesn't mean that you're going to be the most high-performing employee in your job. But if you know that there's a lack of effort there, maybe obedience means working hard and doing what God has asked you to do in the workplace or in your school. Maybe obedience for you means being more careful about what you say and how you speak about other people or, or what you might post on, online and how you, how you talk about people who differ than, than you. Maybe obedience means, means, be, means being more kind and gracious, right? Maybe obedience for you being, means being more generous with your time or with your resources, right? Maybe there's things in your life, there's issues with friends or family members or coworkers that you can play a part in helping, But you have all these reasons why you don't want to do it or why you feel like maybe you're not the one for the job. Maybe obedience for you means in this season being generous with your time, with your effort. Or maybe, as we say, what does obedience look like for you? You don't have an answer. You might say, I I don't know what that looks like. And it might be because you are not actually pursuing the Lord. You're not actually asking what this looks like for you. Now, as I say that, I don't want anyone to feel guilty. So for the fact that, for example, the fact that you're even here today means that you care and you should be encouraged in that. But sometimes we don't know what God is asking us to do because we've spent no time seeking and asking him. I kind of liken it. I've shared this story once a while ago when I was uh, maybe 10 years old or so, something like that. Uh, my mom, we ordered some pizza. My mom was upstairs. There was like a $20 bill downstairs. And she said, when the pizza guy comes, just give him this $20 bill. And so the pizza guy comes and I get this $20 bill. I hand it to him and he gives me the pizza. And then he says, would you like any change? And I'm like, well, that's a weird question because anytime you go to the store and you buy something with cash, they don't, like, you get change. I'm not going to give you extra money. Like there's a cost for it and you give my change. And so he asked me if we got any change. I'm like, well, this is weird. And so I said, yes. And then he says, well, how much? And I'm like, what? What do you know how much? And so I'm like 10 years old. It was like 1767. I don't know how much it was, something like that. And so I'm like trying to do the math in my head to get like the exact amount of like, okay, it's like $2 and like 30. And so I eventually, this was like 30 seconds, it was kind of awkward. I tell him the exact change I want. He goes, okay. And he gives me the exact change and he closes the door and leaves. And my mom comes downstairs and says, I got the pizza and the change is on the counter. And she said, you weren't supposed to. What change? So you're supposed to let him keep the change for a tip. And I had no idea. And to this day, whenever I think about it, I feel terrible, right? And so Pizza Man, my name is Dylan Dotson. I grew up at 302 Swordgate Drive in Cary, North Carolina. <laughs> that I am sorry. Come to New City. I will pay you back tenfold. I feel so guilty. <laughs> but what happened there? I didn't give him a change because I didn't know, right? It's not that I was trying to be stingy or trying to be a jerk or trying to not give him what he deserved. I just didn't know. And I think sometimes we talk about what does obedience look like for you? There's there's an answer for all of us. And it might be that we just need to ask. Maybe ask some friends that we care for and that care care for us and that we trust and say, hey, where are some areas in my life that you think that I maybe am not honoring God the way that I should? What does obedience look like for you? This is a very important question. If we want to see God's power move in our life, if we want to see, see and experience God and who he is, if obedience is greater than our ability, we have to wrestle with this question. And so we'll continue in the story. The, the second part of, uh, Roman, or sorry, of Exodus chapter 7, we're going to see the first sign. So let me give you some little background before we read it. What, basically what is supposed to be happening here in these next five verses, it's a foreshadowing of all that is to come. 
right? That God, that, that God shows his power to Pharaoh. Pharaoh rejects God and says, I'm not going to listen. I'm going to do what I want to do. And then, he, and then it eventually leads to disastrous consequences, right? He says, I'm going to go my own way. I'm not going to listen to that, even though I've seen your power displayed, and it's going to lead to disastrous consequences. And so the first sign before the plagues, here's what happens. Verse 8, it says, The Lord said to Moses and Aaron, When Pharaoh tells you perform a miracle, tell Aaron, take your staff and throw it down before Pharaoh. It will become a serpent. So Moses and Aaron went into Pharaoh and did just as the Lord had commanded. Aaron threw down his staff before Pharaoh and his officials, and it became a serpent. But then Pharaoh called the wise men and the sorcerers, the Egyptians of Egypt, and they also did the same thing by their occult practices. Each one threw down his own staff, And it became a serpent. But Aaron's staff swallowed their staffs. However, Pharaoh's heart was hard, and he did not listen to them, as the Lord had said. So again, remember, the first time that Moses and Aaron approached Pharaoh, things did not go well. Pharaoh said, I'm not going to let your people go. And in fact, I'm going to make their work even harder. I'm not going to supply them with straw to make bricks. They're going to have to figure it out themselves and make the same amount of bricks. Of course, they couldn't do that. And so they were beaten. And and the Israelites were angry at Moses and Aaron for coming and promising that God would deliver them. Things did not go well. Uh, But now they come with a sign. They come with a sign that it's not just words, that God, that Yahweh's power is going to be on display just to show you that this is from God and this is what God wants you to do, to let his people go. And so they do it. Moses and Aaron, Aaron throws down his staff, it becomes a snake, which seems pretty cool, but then the Egyptians do the same thing. And so the question then becomes is, what are we supposed to make of this? Like, what are we supposed to do with the fact that Moses and Aaron do this cool thing, but then the Egyptians do this cool thing? There's a couple things that we see. The first thing is that Moses and Aaron, what the, the audience or the original hearers of the story, one of the things that would have stuck out to them is that Moses and Aaron are not magicians. They are just normal people doing what God asked them to do. It gives us idea that what they did was genuine, right? What they did was genuine and from God. The question then becomes is, how did the Egyptians do this? Now, the narrator, the text does not say, and there's interesting things you can read about the plagues or about this sign, about people try to explain, here's what happened, and maybe there was like trickery involved, or maybe there was demonic forces and forces involved, or somehow they did this. And what we just need to see is that the this author of this story does not tell us, and so it's not necessarily wrong to try to figure it out, but we're not told. Somehow, some way, they also, however, get snakes. But how does it end? The point is, how does this end? That their snake, the Egyptian snakes, were swallowed up by Aaron's snake, which is showing the superiority of Yahweh over Pharaoh and these Egyptians. And there could be a lot said about this, but I'll just keep it short by saying this, that snakes in the Egyptian world were a big deal. They were a sign of power. They were the sign of the gods. That's why a lot of pharaohs had snakes in their drawings and in the hats and the different things that they wore. And so the fact that there was a snake would have been a direct sign or a direct um, challenge to Pharaoh's authority and to Pharaoh's deity. And so the fact that Aaron's snake swallows theirs would say, yeah, Yahweh is in control over here. You might have ways of doing things the way that you want to do them, but God is ultimately in control. And then at the end of this, what happens? Pharaoh's heart was hard, and he did not listen to them. Right? No matter how these, all these snakes came to be, ultimately Aaron's snake wins, showing the, the power and the superiority of Yahweh, and yet Pharaoh doesn't listen. And we can reach the question, why? Like we, 
We might like to think, well, if we were in Pharaoh's situation and we clearly saw God's power, that we would listen, and yet his heart was hardened. Why is that? Well, I think part of the reason that Pharaoh's heart is hardened is the same reason that you and I sometimes harden our heart and sometimes go our own way and reject God, and that is because we are not objective in our view of God. Pharaoh is not objective in his view of God. You and I are not objective in your view of God. It's not like Pharaoh was like, hmm, let me survey all the evidence. And it clearly seems like I'm losing here. And so I'm going to follow him, right? That's not how it worked, right? The Egyptians had their own gods. A pharaoh was viewed as some sort of a deity himself. And so he had strong reasons not to listen, not to obey. And the same is true for us, right? All of us have all sorts of personal reasons why we should reject Pharaoh or why we should reject God. And it's important for us to understand this because we like to assume in our post-enlightenment rational culture that everything we, we, we don't use emotion in anything. It's just like a pure reason and, and uh, objectivity as to why we come to the conclusions that we come to. Now, all scientific surveys show and studies show that's not true. We are highly emotional. In fact, we are more emotional than rational in our decision-making. But if we don't understand that, if we don't understand we have certain biases and assumptions when it comes to God, we will fool ourselves into thinking the reason we are rejecting God is purely because of evidence and not because of issues in our own life. Like, for example, uh, as an undergrad student getting my uh, degree in religion, three of my favorite professors in the religion department, I took all of them multiple times, were very pretty hardcore atheists, if you will. Like they were, they were anti-God, especially Christianity, and you know, had all these reasons why it's not true, the Bible's not true, we can't believe it, all that sort of thing. And as I got to know them, I found out that all three of these professors, who I really liked, all had been hurt by the church or Christians in some way when they were growing up, all three of them. Which right there shows you, this is not simply an intellectual exercise. Something had happened to them that had caused them to say, this God I don't believe in, this God is not real because of what has happened to me. And if we don't understand that, if we don't understand that all of us have biases and kind of blind spots when it comes to God, we might reject God without actually looking at the full picture, without actually trusting and asking God. We are not objective in our view of God, and neither is Pharaoh, which is why he has such a hard time following what God asks him to say following God, how God asked them to say. And so ultimately what we see happening here, what we're going to see over the next couple of weeks and really throughout the book of Exodus is this, that when we reject God, judgment awaits us. Or put another way, that judgment awaits uh, for those who reject God. When we say, for whatever reason, objective or subjective of why we're going to do our own thing, ultimately judgment awaits. Here's what we see happening all throughout Scripture. That God is serious about sin. He is serious about evil. He is serious about suffering. He hates it. And a righteous and holy God will not allow us to go our own way, will not allow us to pretend that we are God ourselves. The Egyptians are going to feel God's judgment. Because they rejected him for whatever reasons it was, they rejected him. And this is what's interesting is that so will we if we go our own way. And in fact, so do the Israelites. So do the Israelites. It's interesting, as we'll see later on, not, 20, not 48 to 72 hours after they are leaving Egypt, they already begin to question God. And then it comes to the point as they wander through the wilderness, they outright reject him, even though they have seen his power and his grace and his mercy. But the Israelites are like us in a lot of ways, that even when we see God move, we are so apt to go our own way. We reject the goodness and grace and forgiveness of God, 
And then we experience at least some part in this life, but certainly in the life to come. If we reject God, he will reject us, not because he wants to, but because he gives us over to the desires of our heart, which is why in Hebrews chapter 3, I just want to read Hebrews chapter 3 with you. And if you have a Bible, you can go ahead and flip there. It won't be on the screen, but it'll be on page 1062 in those black Bibles. In Hebrews chapter 3, uh, the author of Hebrews is talking about the grace and mercy of Jesus, that he came, that he gave his life for us, that he is our final and our high priest, that he gives us grace and mercy. And it's a warning to receive the grace and mercy of God and not to reject the grace and mercy of God. And so I'm just going to read this whole thing pretty much straight through, kind of read scripture over us as a reminder and an encouragement to receive God's mercy because he wants to give us grace and mercy. Hebrews chapter 3, referencing the Israelites in the wilderness after they've already seen God's grace and his power, ultimately at different times and different stages reject him and face God's judgment. Here's what Hebrews chapter 3 says. It says, therefore, holy brothers and sisters, we share in a heavenly calling. Consider Jesus, the apostle and the high priest of our confession. He was faithful to the one who appointed him, just as Moses was in all God's household. For Jesus is considered worthy of more glory than Moses, just as the builder has more honor than the house. In other words, he's saying Jesus was greater than Moses. Now, every house is built by someone, but the one who built everything is God. Moses was faithful as a servant in all God's household, as a testimony to what would be said in the future. But Christ was faithful as a son over his household, and we are that household if we hold on to our confidence and the hope in which we boast that Christ is our king and has given us the grace and mercy of God. And so because of that, it says this in verse 7. Therefore, as the Holy Spirit says... Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion on the day of testing in the wilderness. He's talking about the various trials and times that the, Egyptians, or the Israelites rejected God as they were traveling to the promised land. Verse 9, where your fathers tested me, tried me, and saw my works for 40 years. Therefore, I was provoked to anger with that generation and said, they will always go astray in their hearts and they have not known my ways. So I swore in my anger, they will not enter my rest. Watch out, brothers and sisters, so that there won't be any of you an evil, unbelieving heart that turns away from the living God. But encourage each other daily, while it is still called today, so that none of you is hardened by sin's deception. For we have become participants in Christ if we hold firmly until the end, uh, until the end, the reality that we had at the start. Again, as it is said, today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion. Do not harden your hearts as Pharaoh did to Moses. Verse 16, for, we have heard, for who heard and rebelled? Wasn't it all who came out of Egypt under Moses, with whom, with whom was God angry for 40 years? Wasn't it with those who sinned, whose bodies fell in the wilderness? And to whom did he swear that they would not enter his rest, if, if not to those who disobeyed? So we see that they were unable to enter because of unbelief. In other words, what we see happening here is that just like Pharaoh's heart was hardened, so were the Israelites hardened from God. Even though they had seen the grace of God, the power of God, they disobeyed, and they ultimately went their own way, which, by the way, is true of all of us. Here's the thing. Our natural inclination is being our own God rather than submitting to the God. 
Our natural inclination, rather than obeying and following God, is not submitting to Him, but viewing ourselves as God instead of submitting to the God. And the good news of the gospel is good news because even in that, there is grace and mercy for us. So the good news of the gospel of the Israelites in the Old Testament, we see the, the Israelites be, be, try to be faithful and fail time and time and time again that God gave them grace and mercy ultimately in the man named Jesus so that the entire world can receive the grace and mercy of God. What we see happening here, uh, even to Pharaoh and giving him multiple examples or multiple chances to turn and follow him throughout the Old Testament, giving the Israelites multiple chances to receive grace and mercy of God. What we see throughout Scripture is that God has not hardened his heart towards you. He has not hardened his heart towards you. And so the question is, have you hardened your heart towards him? This is the problem with Hebrews chapter 3, that the people had seen the grace and mercy of God, and yet their hearts were hardened, that they did not listen, and they went their own way. And the good news of the gospel is that even in that, there is grace and mercy for us. In other words, as we close, what we see happening through Hebrews 3 and Exodus chapter 7 is that God responds to hardened hearts with grace. Right? The point of all of this is that God responds to hardened hearts with grace. And so listen, I, I don't know what this yesterday looked like or this week or this year has looked like for you. I don't know what decisions that you have made, but you need to know that God loves you, that God cares for you, that he desires a relationship with you, and he offers that in Jesus. This is not about trying to earn your way back to God. This is not trying to prove your worthiness to God so that he might give you grace and forgiveness. But yet what we see that in the form of Jesus is the objective reality that God cares for us and that he loves us. And so no matter what decisions you have made, no matter what direction your life has looked like, the past year or maybe multiple years, God responds to hardened hearts with grace. He loves you where you are. He cares for you where you are. And the good news of the gospel is that he has defeated sin and death and darkness so that anybody who loves and trusts and follows him can receive his grace and his mercy. It's not about our ability. It's not about our effort. It's not about our trying really hard. It's about trusting and following and obeying and relying on the grace and mercy of God. And that even when we fall short, which we all do, God still responds to grace. Even in the moments where our hearts are hard because we're making our own decisions and going our own way, God still responds to grace. He responds to grace, and the invitation and the encouragement is then also for us to give grace and mercy to others so, so that we say at New City Church so that as many people as possible can see Jesus and grow in a relationship with him. God responds to hardened hearts with grace, and no matter who you are, no matter what you walked in with, the invitation is to come and see and experience the grace and mercy of God. Let's pray.